0: Less than two weeks ago, U.S. District Court Judge Indira Talwani made an unprecedented move and approved a temporary injunction blocking ICE agents from making civil arrests of undocumented immigrants in and around Massachusetts courthouses. This was in response to a lawsuit filed by advocates and district attorneys Marion Ryan and Rachel Rollins, which have accused ICE of commandeering the state courts for immigration purposes. Tawani's decision has been lauded by lawyers and immigration groups nationwide, but met with skepticism from enforcement officials. This is Sarah Bettencourt from Commonwealth Magazine on the podcast. Today, we're welcoming Jessica Vaughn and Matt Cameron to speak mostly on the temporary injunction, but also maybe other immigrant issues um, facing Massachusetts residents and officials in this very contentious era. Vaughn is the director of policy studies for the Center of Immigration Studies, a nonpartisan research institute that examines the economic, security, and social impact of immigration. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Sarah. Um, And Cameron is a director of the Golden Stairs Immigration Center, an East Boston nonprofit immigration legal service provider, and a lecturer on immigration policy at Northeastern. Good morning. Um, So let's just jump right into this. Um, So CIS is considered by some to be conservative-leaning, and Jessica, I know you've written extensively about the law enforcement side of this. What is your reaction to Talwani's decision?
1: Well, First of all, this is n- not really a liberal conservative issue, but um, our reaction is that this is very unfortunate and, and um, not only an activist ruling, but also one that is going to cause public safety problems in the Commonwealth, uh, both for ICE officers, and, uh, and it hampers their ability to do their job, but also for immigrants in their communities, because let's face it, ICE doesn't want to be making these arrests in courthouses. It has to now because it's the next best thing following the wake of sanctuary policies that have been enacted in different cities and towns, but also one that was imposed by the courts on the entire Commonwealth. So if they can't arrest their caseload in the jails, which is where most of their cases are, they have to go to the next best safe environment, which is a courthouse. Otherwise, they have to go to the streets, to people's workplaces, and that's not safe for either ICE officers or the public.
0: So it seems like there's a lot of fear among undocumented witnesses and folks who are even out on bail coming into court. Um, And when I talked to advocates in the past, they had mentioned this fear. Matt, as an immigration attorney who's sort of on the ground, um, I'm sort of hoping you might be able to clear some of this up and talk about who's being arrested and what this decision does.
2: Well, certainly. And I think Jessica and I have just reached our first point of agreement, which is I do not think that immigration policy and politics should be partisan. I think that there is a way to talk about this outside of the current binary that we're working with. And I hope that we're able to do that. And I'm I'm speaking, of course, as a practitioner. I have a very particular bias and viewpoint. I'm not going to deny that. But I've been to Massachusetts courthouses on and off for the past 14 years. I practice a lot of post-conviction immigration work, trying to get people uh, to mitigate the consequences of criminal activity. And I've seen my clients taken in front of me. And I've experienced the anxiety of looking around the courthouse wondering when the next person is going to step forward to take my client away from me and deny me my ability to represent him and deny him the justice and day in court that he he deserves, that we all deserve. And my concern here, my, my real problem with the courthouse arrest policy is not that they're arresting people in courthouses, but that they're doing it before this person has had the chance to have their case adjudicated by a tribunal where guilt may be established beyond a reasonable doubt. Because at the point at which you've deported somebody in the middle of their case, you're leaving them forever with an open question mark. You're leaving a victim potentially going on uh, w- without justice. You're leaving the Commonwealth without a case. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, all around, I don't see that it does anyone any favors to be doing what we're doing, which right now, in my experience, has been getting people in the middle of these cases, not at the end of them. If they were to get them at the end of them, they, there's, no, there's an established process. It's very easy for, the, for ICE to come and get them in the jails and the prisons and take them from that point. Um, but... I think it's just far too much, and I think there's a very good reason that the district attorneys brought this case um, because they're tired of seeing their cases interrupted.
0: And so what is the policy like in Massachusetts jails um, for having ICE agents come in and detain someone after you know they've uh, done their time or they're currently in there waiting for a hearing? Is it sort of an across-the-board situation where they can go in and detain them there as opposed to courthouses?
1: Well, as a result of a decision by the Massachusetts um, Supreme uh, Judicial Court, uh, known as the Lund decision, um, no law enforcement officer, whether in a court or a jail or a police station or a sheriff's department, is able to hold an individual for ICE to take custody, even though ICE has issued a warrant with probable cause, even though these individuals have been arrested through biomet, you know, identified, excuse me, through biometrics, fingerprints, and they know that uh, the the person is more than likely deportable, they cannot uh, be held for them. ICE cannot be in every single jail and courthouse and police station in the state. They uh, rely on something called a detainer, which comes with a warrant of arrest, so that. Uh, local officials, law enforcement officials, can hold individuals until they can get there, and federal law provides for them to be held for up to 48 hours. That's the authority that, that's the system Congress created, the authority that Congress gave ICE officers, but the state Supreme Judicial Court has taken the authority away from local officers to cooperate with them, contrary to what some advocates would have you believe, the vast majority of ice's targets are people who have criminal convictions or have been egregious immigration violators and and ice waits until they have a conviction to remove them and if an attorney uh, a prosecutor wants to wants ice to wait until a case is finished all they have to do is file a writ in court and ice will not deport people out from under cases here in the Commonwealth especially criminal cases they want people to be have justice served on them so that's not really a problem the issue is is that um, with this lawsuit, The target is really immigration enforcement and a a political difference of opinion for for how and whether immigration law should be enforced.
2: Can I just respond very quickly? Just a couple of points there. Because Massachusetts prisons and jails do have a 287G agreement for information sharing that is still in effect.
1: Not all jails. Uh, Only a couple of them. uh, A lot of the big
2: ones. Um, And the fact is that uh, I still can come and get someone. It's just that the Supreme Judicial Court, like many other courts, has found that this is not a warrant supported by probable cause. This is administrative order, and it's not a judicial warrant, and this is not probable cause. At the end of the day, a detainer is a request, and that we shouldn't have to spend a dime on state resources. And certainly a state prosecutor shouldn't have to notify the federal government that they want to proceed with their prosecution. I think that's, I mean, all of this comes around to to just a slap in the face to state law enforcement, uh, both cops and prosecutors who are just trying to do their jobs. Uh, And I think that it's worth bearing in mind that it was district attorneys who brought this case, and for a very good reason.
1: Right. Political reasons, I think.
2: Well, you don't think they want to finish their cases? I mean, they want, they want to do their jobs just like everyone else.
1: Well, they have yet to provide an example of any innocent victim who was ever arrested by ICE in a courthouse. And, and I think that's very interesting. I mean, this is they've manufactured a problem that they've hung this lawsuit on. It wasn't actually a problem. They've tried to invent one to bring a case Um, to prevent ICE from doing its constitutional and perfectly legitimate job in courthouses. In fact, we have a state policy in Massachusetts that explicitly permits ICE to make arrests in state courthouses.
2: I guess we might have a different definition of innocent in this circumstance. I don't think someone arrested for driving without a license just for trying to get to work is is not
0: innocent.
1: Well, if they're in the country illegally, and they know that they are.
0: Um, So I just want to clarify for listeners um, in terms of who has something called a 287G agreement, which is sort of an agreement between local law enforcement um, or sheriffs with uh, uh, federal immigration officials. Um, Right now, it is Bristol, Plymouth, and Barnstable counties, as well as the Department of Corrections as well. And this is something that has come up in the past with the Safe Communities Act. A major part of that um, that has been advocated on, on Beacon Hill has been removing these 287Gs. But also, another thing... Mentioned by a lot of immigration advocates is this concept of people going into courthouses who are not there to post bail, and are not there to, um, who are not there criminally, and being civilly arrested. Um, and I, I haven't really explored the issue much, but I'm hoping Matt, as an immigration attorney, you might be able to talk a little bit about what you've seen. Are these witnesses? And I guess, are there actual examples?
2: Well, I'm in a unique position here, I think, because I'm, I am an immigration advocate, but I also happen to be married to one of the best prosecutors in Massachusetts. I'm proud to say that. And uh, she's very concerned about witnesses disappearing. This has certainly happened, even just being able to keep defendants in the country for serious cases. Um, but I will tell you that there is an umbrella effect here. It is not just the people directly affected, because rumors and speculation just floods through these immigrant communities. I work a lot with Chelsea, Revere, East Boston, all very heavily Uh, Latino, especially Central American communities. And the number of people now that I've had to talk into, going to the police, talk into going to the courts for protection, people in serious trouble, people who are being victimized daily by domestic abuse, sexual violence, who are terrified to talk to the police, even in a place like Boston, where it's about as safe as it could possibly be in the United States, and terrified to go to the courts because they've heard about people being arrested in court. And even now, when I'm telling people there's a federal order and you're safe to go to court and do your business, Uh, there's still a lot of skepticism because they've heard of so many stories like this. So I just want to remember that all of these policies that we're talking about here in this room go far beyond uh, into homes and into real communities where they have real consequences.
1: Well, that's right, Matt. That's why this is so important that people understand what's really happening. I mean, I think the advocacy group should be out there. Making sure that victims and witnesses know that they're not going to be targeted by ICE, that they're simply not going to be targeted for enforcement and never are, and you know, I worry that it's some of this um, stories about you know possibilities of arrest that are really unfounded and based on misinformation that are causing the fear. And uh, I think that needs to be tamped down so that people do come forward. I mean, it's the best thing for victims and witnesses to be known by ICE so that they can access the protections that are available in the law for victims and witnesses in terms of, you know, if, if they're in the country illegally and they're a victim of domestic violence, they may qualify for visa protections. And that's a reason to have more communication between state and local officials, not less.
2: And there's an argument to be made that organizations such as yours that are actively equating undocumented people with criminality uh, aren't helping, aren't helping the conversation or the discourse. And we we have a lot to talk about. we're talking
1: about victims and witnesses here.
2: It all comes down to the same thing. It all comes down to the same communities affected. And I don't think that these distinctions necessarily get made.
1: There was a a report that ICE did last year uh, that studied a 10-week period that found that First of all, um, ICE is identifying many, many people who are getting arrested in the Commonwealth who are potentially subject to deportation. And then they vet those cases through the Secure Communities Program. And ICE issues uh, issues detainers on about half of the individuals that it identifies that it could be targeting, but they only go after the worst of the worst, that half that are the most egregious. And then of those, they're only ever able to take custody of about half of them because of the sanctuary policies. So clearly, they are being hindered in their ability to keep the most egregious uh, violators off the streets. And those are the ones that I think everybody agrees should be subject to deportation.
0: And so there's this Immigration Nationality Act of 1965, this whole concept of Arresting folks at courthouses is not a new thing. From back then, immigration officers were allowed to perform civil immigration arrests. But I think it's, it's pretty fair to say that the political climate and just the polarization of this whole issue, the number of immigrants that are here uh, has increased significantly. I guess what the, do the two of you have to say about the impact of uh, this sort of longstanding policy on the current situation. And Matt, do you want to start?
2: Well, we've only had a a branch of government dedicated to immigration enforcement for 16 years. So this is a somewhat new experiment. It's certainly not an inevitable experiment to have it done this way. Um, But you can go back to the 20s. There's there's a great letter from a Cleveland police chief uh, in which he was being asked by the Immigration Service at the time to try to find somebody in his community that they were looking for. And he politely wrote them back and said, you come find him. This is not my job. This is not a new idea that we, can, we separate state, local, and federal governments, and certainly it's classic constitutional federalism, it's classic small government conservatism on any other issue it would be. Um, I think that if the IRS started acting the way that ICE is and going to courthouses and picking up people that they thought were dangerous who hadn't happened to have paid their taxes, and trust me, there are plenty of dangerous people who haven't paid their taxes, I, I think that we'd, have, we'd be having a very different conversation in this country about how the IRS was behaving. But because it's ICE and because it's this issue, I think it's very easy to, uh, to come out against it like this.
1: Well, that's right. I, I think that immigration enforcement is being singled out in this situation. Uh, my experience is that uh, the vast majority of law enforcement officers, agencies, leaders across the country – understand the importance of cooperating with ICE. ICE doesn't patrol our streets looking for the most dangerous criminals. They find them through referrals from local law enforcement agencies, and those are the the ones that they want to focus on, but they need to be able to cooperate, and we don't have that uh, option here in the Commonwealth of being able to have someone held in jail at the completion of their sentence uh, because of the Lund decision. So now ICE has to find another way. And again, it's important to remember, this, this policy of courthouse arrests is not part of any um, effort to have mass sweeps or you know, round up people. It's a response to the situation created by the state Supreme Judicial Court and the local jurisdictions within the Commonwealth, like the Boston Police Department, Somerville, Cambridge, at Lawrence that have deliberately enacted policies that restrict cops and ability to and the courthouse's ability to cooperate with ICE.
2: I just want to be clear that when you're talking about holding people in state custody you're talking about holding them up for up to 48 hours at taxpayer expense. I think that's always important to mention.
1: Well it's a lot cheaper to remove a criminal alien than allow them to be released back to the streets to to offend again, which like American criminals, many criminal aliens will reoffend. There's about a 50% reoffense rate, right. and so it's a lot more expensive uh, to prosecute them a second time when they could have been sent back to their home country. Not to mention, it's a lot better to avoid having someone else victimized, as we've seen in some of these horrible cases of, for example, people released by the Newton District Court. Or other places uh, around the Commonwealth that have gone on to reoffend in very serious ways.
2: I would just add that you're giving people a free pass essentially by deporting them in the middle of their cases and you're putting them, uh, essentially, you're, you're victimizing someone in their home country. If, well, if again, that's, if that's where you're coming from.
0: ICE waits until the conclusion of the case.
2: They, they really don't. That, that's the whole issue here.
0: Um, so I do want to, I have a follow up question as to a point that Jessica made earlier. Um, this whole concept of so ICE can't actually detain anyone in jails right now. And now, because of the temporary injunction, courthouses are off limits in most civil cases. Um, What strategies could ICE use moving forward? I know you mentioned this has no connection to raids or anything like that, Um, but it, it does seem like that's in the news a lot.
1: Well, the reality is what they're going to end up doing is having to make their arrests at people's dwellings, at their workplace, on the street, in places that not only is that frightening to others who live in those same communities and work in those same places, um, and it's exactly the kind of enforcement that the people who advocate for this lawsuit claim to be against, and yet are now forcing them into—that's what they're going to have to do more on the street operations like this to, uh, to to get their targets, and that's dangerous and intimidating in the community, and also a lot less safe for ICE officers and uh, people, you know, the general public that happens to be around there.
0: And I I could, have Matt can you respond?
1: Well,
2: if I could just suggest an alternative very briefly, uh, I think there are any number of offenses that Jessica and I agree on, sh- can agree on that should be mandatorily deportable. So let's take something like child sex abuse, something everyone agrees is one of the worst things you can do. Uh, we know when child sex abusers are going to be released from prison, and if you have been convicted of that, you are going to prison. It is not that hard, especially with the 287G agreement, for ICE to know exactly when that person will be released and to come and get them in the least possible invasive way uh, in prison and allow them to go on to immigration custody from there. I just want to be clear about where, where we stand there.
1: Well, that, it certainly would be much better if every jurisdiction had a 287G agreement. No question, but I, I don't think that the people who brought this lawsuit, uh, um, um, DA Ryan and Rollins, are, are interested in that outcome. Uh, I think that would be great.
2: Do you really think they want people to just get away with crimes? Is that really the purpose of this lawsuit? That they want them to go free?
1: No, I think the purpose is to try to interfere with immigration enforcement and to make a political statement. But if the outcome is a 287G agreement across the whole state in every county uh, jail, I think that would be a great outcome and much more safe for the people of the Commonwealth. But just
2: to be clear, you don't take them at their word, that they're concerned about their prosecutions and they're frustrated by ICE's uh, constant interference.
1: Well, since they don't have any examples of any victims or witnesses that have been arrested by ICE in courthouses, I think that it's a speculative... Um, question that they're raising, and that's e- even more so why I think the injunction by Judge Talwani was inappropriate.
2: By definition, those will be hard to find. Most of them have been deported if that has actually happened the way they say, but well, they also why do think we need an injunction. Defendants have rights too, and uh, they have a lot of rights.
0: Do you both see uh, ICE actually taking this to so the First Circuit and appeal, and also just getting around this language of targets um, and going into people's homes? I guess, what has the reaction been uh, among the immigrant community um, in terms of, you know, a reaction to the temporary injunction? And I I guess, has there been any tangible uh, repercussions from it?
2: It's been a tremendous relief, I can say, for, I mean, just being able to tell people that, yes, for sure, we can actually go to court and walk out together has been a tremendous relief for everybody that I work with. And actually for my own mental health, not that the story is really about me, but I've been working for the past 14 years, and my anxiety has gotten worse and worse every time I go into a Massachusetts state courthouse on a day that we have a scheduled hearing. Um, Why is that? Because I've had now four or five people taken in front of me when they had good, strong defenses. One of them is still in ICE custody a year later, and we might actually be able to finish his case in a couple of weeks here, but he never should have been taken in. He was acquitted completely. And he's still in ICE custody. And it, these, these things have real consequences.
0: Do you have any thoughts on if this will be appealed or um, what the fallout has been from the enforcement side?
1: I don't know if uh, the government will appeal this. I think they should for a number of reasons, not only for the policy and and practical reasons and constitutional reasons that we've been talking about, but also the fact that Judge Tolwani really should have recused herself from this case based on her statements in prior cases about her animosity toward ICE being in the courthouse making arrests. So I, I think they they do have grounds, and uh, that there are many reasons that suggest that there are good practical, constitutional, legal, and, and even political reasons to, to make an appeal. And it has implications, of course, for the rest of the country.
0: And Matt, do you have any thoughts on Telwani recusing herself in the situation?
2: I don't. I haven't seen any grounds for it. I certainly expect they'll appeal on what, on those grounds or anything else. Uh, but I wouldn't expect them to let this go.
0: Immigration policy is a very contentious issue, especially with what's going on in the border. You have in, in Boston even uh, Wayfair employees. Actually, protesting and striking because they didn't agree with the fact that their company was providing a two hundred thousand dollars contract to these border detention facilities. Um, in this sort of contentious age, how do you how do you see this court ruling having a place? And I, I'm under the impression that it's the first of its kind in this country. So, it is. Um, I guess, Matt, do you want to start?
2: Uh, well, I mean, after the Lund decision, uh, that Jessica mentioned earlier, ICE. St- publicly stated that it would be essentially tripling down on courthouse arrests at the point and just for the reasons that Jessica already gave. And so we saw a tremendous uptick. Uh, we saw a lot more fear and concern and speculation around what was going on in these courts and what was happening. But you know, our real enemy here is misinformation, I think, on both sides. And there is just so much misunderstanding. So many people, for example, just think that a sanctuary policy is the purge, essentially, that crime is legal. That's I hear people say things like that all the time. Um, or that people are criminals just for being in this country without permission, which they are not, clearly are not under any view of the law. And as long as this kind of misinformation, this misunderstanding is out there, as long as we cannot agree on the basic terms uh, that we're working with, as long as we can't understand the system that we have, I don't think we're ever going to reach any meaningful reform. I don't think we're ever going to reach any meaningful agreement about how to go forward from this. And that's been my real concern about this, is is that we have trouble defining and, and sticking with terms, I think, because there's so much public misperception. Around these these points,
0: and are you talking about terms like, say, asylum versus uh, people here illegally? Um, what kind of terms are you thinking about? Well, even
2: just calling undocumented people criminals, which um, you know, there's been a pretty sustained campaign to make sure that those two words are equated, and I think that's very unfortunate, and I think it's caused a lot of the uh, division and, and angst and anger that we've seen in, in this country in the last couple of years.
0: So, Jessica, I know CIS does use terms like illegal immigrants, um, and I guess what is your sort of thought on this, Um, and it's the definition and the play into public discussion?
1: Well, we have seen a lot of efforts um, by advocates to try to change the terms of discussion, for example, getting away from the the legal term for someone who's in the country illegally, which is illegal alien, um, versus um, some, you know, terms like undocumented, new American, things like that. Um, That's, you know, that's a tactic that's been employed, but I I don't think is really uh, helpful in, you know, civil discourse on this issue. Um, I, I think what's most important for people to understand on, uh, in understanding ICE is that the vast, vast majority of the people that they are seeking to arrest and remove are individuals who most of whom are in the country illegally. They also are looking for those legal immigrants who have violated the terms of their admission by being convicted of a very serious crime. but. Their targets are overwhelmingly those who are causing problems in American communities, um, often immigrant communities, and people who are the most egregious violators of immigration law, for example, who've been deported before or skipped out on their court hearings. Uh, There are other ways to address the general problem of illegal immigration, like going after employers who are getting away with hiring illegal workers and, and you know, dealing with um, the the people who are uh, arriving at the border and asking for asylum and all sorts of other issues. But, um, you know, I, I think that's part of what people don't understand is that who actually is ICE looking for and why? And if we can have some honesty about that, I think it would illustrate why ICE is, is uh, fighting this case so hard.
0: And I guess in terms of... It- this idea of ICE mostly detaining criminals, um, what would you say to the people who, I guess, are more concerned about their loved ones being detained in a situation where they have had no criminal offense or background?
1: Well, in those rare cases, um, they should understand that their loved one will have every opportunity for due process under our immigration court system, which unfortunately, is, uh, uh, as we've alluded to, is extremely backlogged at this point in time. Um, but they, they do have, uh, you know, there are different levels of due process according to someone's situation here. And um, they may be able to make a case for being able to remain in the country But if they're here illegally, they need to answer to those charges as well, whether they're a criminal or not.
2: And I think we might have very very different definitions of what might constitute a serious crime as well. And I was just looking at the Obama numbers from, I think, 2008 to 2016. And uh, the majority, it was something like 60 percent of the people, and this is from DHS's own numbers, um, had been – Put into proceedings through a traffic violation of some kind, uh, or through some other immigration offense that was didn't suggest any kind of danger to the public.
1: Well, that's because those are mostly border cases. If you look at the interior cases, more than ninety percent of them are convicted criminals, well, not, that, not traffic that,
2: that was actually the interior numbers, and I can follow up with that. Um, and I was actually getting an argument with Obama's own immigration policy person, because now they're trying to rewrite that legacy, and to say that the, the Obama administration uh, was somehow easier than, than the Trump administration and some of these people, and that's just not true. If, not, if anything, Trump has completely deprioritized the system, and deprioritized violent criminals and serious crimes, and it's really just become open season for whoever's in front of them. And I think that that's a, a far, and even at some this point, you can see off the record, you've got a number of ICE agents saying, we want to return back to the time when we could prioritize. But even under the allegedly felons not families policy, uh, we still saw more people put into proceedings over unlicensed operation, operating suspended license, uh, things like that, that really I think anybody could agree are not the same kind of public safety threat that might be implicated by the phrase serious crimes. And I really wanna push back against this attempt to suggest that there's something inherently criminal about undocumented people, because that is what we're talking about here, is that you're you're suggesting there's a group of people who are more likely to commit crimes and more likely uh, essentially, as a matter of character, because they're already here without permission uh, to be a danger to our society, and well, I just I've don't think that's Well, I've never made that, that assertion. Well, I think uh, you've been associated with quite a few people who have. Well, uh, uh, that's different from me saying. N- not to mention your organization. If you're itself. wrong about that. Well, and, and are you looking forward to John chen's papers being unsealed? Um, I have
0: no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. um, do you guys have any thirty-second final thoughts on specifically the court situation with the temporary injunction um, that you would like to add?
2: I'm sleeping better. I'm feeling better about my job and about what I can tell my clients. And I do think that if you believe in states' rights and limited government and the right of local law enforcement to prosecute its own cases, that there's really only one way to look at this, and that's from the side of the DAs.
0: And Jessica?
1: Well, unfortunately, the people who live in the communities where where criminals are being allowed to go back to the streets instead of sent back to their home country are not sleeping well. They're not afraid of ICE. They're afraid of the dangerous individuals that are protected by sanctuary policies and by misguided injunctions like this one.
0: All right, guys. So we have to wrap it up, but I want to thank Matt Cameron from Golden Stairs Immigration Center and Jessica Vaughn for talking with us today for listeners. Um, I know it's July fifth. I hope you have a fun and cool Fourth of July weekend, and we hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for being able to unfold some immigration policy with us. Thanks, sir.
1: So. My pleasure. Thank you.